0: From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia file. I am Maxim Trudolubov. Russia seems to feature prominently in the American media, in the public discourse in general, but so theoretically there must be a certain interest in Russia, in America, in the English-speaking world in general. Yet the Russia of American politics and media is not, uh, should I say, particularly nuanced. You see a, a picture that is more like a caricature. Myself, I am Russian, and uh, living mainly in Russia and in Europe. So, and I've, of course, I don't expect foreigners to be too interested in my country to acquire a really, really sophisticated understanding. And uh, I do realize that thinking in stereotypes is actually normal, is perfectly normal. In we, we think about other places often in stereotypes. But given Russia's significance and all those well-known difficulties, dealing with uh, this uh, vast country, there should be some interest and there should be some expertise explaining um, about this country to the general public and politicians. And there should be some demand for knowledge about the place, its politics, its history. So my question, is there really such a demand? And um, joining me for this conversation, my excellent, well-prepared, Guests are uh, Jill Doherty, a well-known expert on Russia and uh, former Soviet Union. She uh, spent uh, almost three decades with CNN, worked in Russia, served as foreign affairs correspondent uh, in Washington. Currently, Jill is a global fellow at the Cannon Institute. Joining us uh, is Kevin Rothrock, uh, senior editor at the English language edition uh, of Medusa, this is a Russian-language uh, news site based in Latvia. Uh, Kevin also produces a, a podcast called Russia Guy, and uh, he used to work for Global Voices, a website about internet-based news stories. Okay, Jill, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. So I will just start by asking Jill, what's your impression? Is there a demand for real knowledge about Russia in the United States?
1: You know, when I got into the study of Russian, a lot of it had to do with what was going on politically at the time, which was the space race and the Soviet Union and the United States racing to the moon. And when the Soviets uh, put the Sputnik up, all of a sudden the United States um, was decided that this is really a national security threat, and it began programs that led to the study of Russian, and I was a recipient of those programs. And then I think, you know, fast forward to 1991, Soviet Union ends, and you have the impression that the Soviet Union is now, you know, Russia is going to turn into Belgium or some other you know, European country. And so there was a lack of interest. It was considered just kind of going to be one of the other countries of Europe, which was, of course, ridiculous because it will never be that. And then um, now I'd say there is an increase, or at least a slight increase, in both the interest and the funding. Uh, Some of it had actually been cut and some of that money is being restored. And I do believe that there is some... Growing interest, judging by the students that I have at Georgetown, and judging by students that I've interacted with at the University of Michigan, there is increasing interest in Russian and Russia on uh, perhaps a broader basis on the um, regional studies areas. But uh, but I think that that's important. It's not enough, but at least I think it's beginning to come back.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you, Jill. Kevin, this image of Russia that is, at least that's my impression because I'm not in the United States, but my impression is that uh, this pervasive image that's, uh, well, probably mostly negative, uh, speaking about Russia as some kind of beast, right? So it's a dangerous animal and uh, we never know what to expect, etc. Why do you think, is this true? Just this, Is this impression true and uh, why... This
2: maybe so. Well, I mean, I think think you're right that to the degree that most Americans think about Russia, which is probably exaggerated in the discourse between either Russian analysts or American analysts who study Russia, I think generally the talk of Russia is exaggerated because most Americans go through a day and don't think about Russia. That's pretty typical. Um, But when they do, at least in the contemporary context, I think it's impossible to appreciate that without viewing it through the kind of partisan lens that is popular right now and so if you're sort of republican leaning or if you're a trump supporter you're inclined to be very skeptical about all the news stories that have been around for the last several years about russian political meddling because that you would view that as sort of the liberals or the democrats attempts to delegitimize the legitimate president and if you're a democrat or you know if you have antipathy for mr trump then you're inclined to think well Either Russia directly meddled and got him elected, or at the very least, the Putin regime resembles a kind of politics that appeals to Trump. And that's bad because it's, uh, it's, it's too transactional. It's not value-based and, and things like that. So I think in terms of how Russia is viewed by contemporary Americans, it, you have to appreciate the partisan aspect there. And it has, has very little to do with Russia, in fact. It has has every, everything to do with you know domestic politics in the United States.
0: But uh, is there a way to influence that or, well, because as I have realized, there is still a a highly sophisticated uh, expert community in in Washington, D.C. that theoretically, theoretically could give, uh, could provide an excellent, excellent explanation for many of those things. And those people seem to be nowhere. They don't seem to influence the political discourse.
2: Well, it's, it's there's sort of a paradox, I think, because on one hand, there was profound interest in Russia and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And, and there was funding for language and so on. And it was like, you know, top of the top of the charts in terms of American concerns, uh, both in academia and in the government. And then with the fall of communism and with the, for the Russian Federation, you get a, a sort of steep dropping off of kind of popular interests and the government's interest in investing in Russian studies. But at the same time, Russian expertise, and this was happening before the end of the Cold War, but accelerated with the collapse of the USSR. Russian expertise in the United States kind of becomes decoupled from this is my understanding, it's become it becomes decoupled from sort of US government expertise, and it kind of can pursue an independent path that is not weighed down by either the dichotomies of the Cold War or the kind of expectations of reinforcing US state interests. And so it becomes it's sort of a thousand flowers bloom. And it's there there's not a single ideological dichotomy that that you, that you can kind of classify every Russia person in I mean like I know there's still an inclination to be you know are you kind of sympathetic to the Kremlin or are you do you hate the Kremlin that's there's there's people do still try to force scholars into these boxes but I think when you get away from say policy discussions and move into sort of pure Academia that no longer makes sense people can't be fit into these kind of these narrow categories and that's I think that's, I guess i just arguing that on one hand you do have less sort of popular interest in Russia among Americans but you could also argue I think persuasively that American expertise on Russia has never been better
0: Oh yeah, that's, that's actually quite interesting, yeah and uh, Jill, what do you think? There is this impression, and I think Kevin partly addressed that, but uh, there's this impression a lot of Cold War stereotyping kind of survived the time and uh, continues to be Operational. Is this true? And is this what role American media, US media, plays in that, if any? What do you think about American media as uh, a source for this kind of uh, stereotyping?
1: I'm thinking of something that happened to me once a few years ago. I was still working for CNN, and I was uh, at the State Department in the booth where we have our little office. And we always had the TV. We had several TVs. They're all on, and they're silent. And at one moment, I looked up, and I saw the hammer and sickle and then these kind of Soviet images that were so, you know, in the back of my mind, like they're part of my psyche. And I actually had like this electrical jolt. And I thought, wow, what is that? And it was an ad for The Americans, the TV show, which, of course, I became addicted to. So I think you've got we've kind of got two Discussions going on here. I mean, one is among the American public, how they view Russia, whether they're actually interested in Russia. And then you have, again, the Russia experts or people who get into the study of Russians. So I'm trying to kind of, you know, break it down for myself. I think among the American people, they are interested in Russia to the extent that they believe that it is kind of the Soviet Union. You know, it's this big, scary place. It's got nuclear weapons. Uh, It's trying to do bad things around the world. And it has these, at the same time, kind of cool, really interesting symbols like, you know, red (laughs) and tanks and uh, the the hammer and sickle and all of that. So there's this kind of retro interest in it. But it I wouldn't call that interest. I just say it's kind of titillating, you know, images of this place that people – that doesn't exist because the Soviet Union is gone, number one. And then also, you know, it, it, it is not really un- – Knowledge of a country. And I think one of the problems, and I really feel it strongly, is that the Soviet Union, if you wanted to brand the Soviet Union in kind of an advertising way, it was really amazing branding. Because again, you had martial music, and you had big boots, and you had tanks and weapons and all of these symbols. And now what do you have? You know, Russia essentially is a little unbranded. I mean, you could say, yeah, you have Putin, and you have um, maybe some of the negative things like when stories pop up about poisonings and things like that, or invading Ukraine, etc. It comes up. But essentially, if you were to ask a person on the street in America, what is Russia? What, What is it all about? I think they would be really hard pressed to say, what is contemporary Russia? Because it is not easy for anyone to really explain. What's going on with Russia? So that, I don't want to talk too long here, but I mean, I think that's kind of the popular dilemma. And then among experts, you've always had kind of the cultural studies people, people who want to read Dostoevsky, and I was one of them, who love the Russian language and are addicted to the language, and they're all kind of over there. You know, working on their masters or their PhDs. And then you have the people who are more in area studies. And I think actually, this, both of those may be areas that could be growing. I believe firmly that interest in Russian and the culture of Russia will always be there. But I think politically, let's call it regional studies, which is where a lot of universities are going, more, you know, broader uh, study of Russia and the region. There are people who are interested in that. There are more students. I teach two courses. I've taught two courses at Georgetown And there are some young people who are really very deeply interested in this kind of foreign policy, regional studies. And then also another phenomenon that I think we kind of forget about is, remember all of the people who left the Soviet Union in the 1980s, like uh, Jews who were finally allowed to get out of the Soviet Union, and their children are now, you know, in their 20s and they are, or maybe even a little less, and they are studying Russia. I have several students in my classes who are, their parents came from the Soviet Union, a lot of them, you know, from Russia and Ukraine, I'd say primarily, maybe Kazakhstan, and they're they're very interested in their country, their parents' country of origin.
0: Just to follow up a little bit on what you were saying, just like you said that you were interested in reading the books, the literature, um, and I've read a lot about people like, I don't know, James Billington, and Ken, George Kennan, who at some point started, uh, their interest in Russia grew up out of a uh, fascination with the literature, with the culture, etc. Is this true to a certain extent today? Uh, what is uh, people's kind of entry point, the um, point of attraction? What what is it? Is it culture or is it Putin and, uh, you know, politics?
1: You know, I think it's both. I I really do, Um, at least judging by the people that I know, the younger people who are getting into this field. Um, But I do think that Russia is different. I mean, the cultural attraction of Russia is, I believe, very strong. And some of it could be you know sometimes it's even negative but i do think that russia in the, at least in the minds of the americans Is not Belgium. It's not France. You know, it is. It's something different, and you know, obviously, that could be a very long discussion about the attraction between Russia and the United States, and we're both gigantic countries, and you know, people going to the West and discovering, or going east and discovering things, but. I do think there's there's always kind of a little frisson of excitement when you get into people who are interested in Russia. It's different.
0: Kevin, uh, can you tell briefly your story, why you, being a very, very American person, suddenly developed an interest in this uh, vast, faraway place? What was your entry point?
2: I know that there's there's almost like a compulsion to for this question to be a kind of like cue to give you my my two minutes about why I love Russia and I'm so drawn to it for this or that reason. I I don't really feel that way. Russia I don't love or hate Russia. I think it's interesting. I don't know if it's the most fascinating place on earth. But honestly like it's just I kind of started doing this and enjoyed it enough that I stuck with it. <laughs> if I have to be completely honest. But I would say that that I mean I, I watched a lot of Soviet movies when I was in college. That was kind of like what got me interested in the language enough to sort of stick with it. But more than anything It's actually, again, this is like a very American thing, but it's the Americans who studied Russia that I met along the way. And then, of course, some of the Russians that I met along the way, too. But honestly, mostly the Americans, because I've had more contact with them just being living in the United States for the most part. Is that these the, the Americans I meet who do this are really really great people. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, wow, this is these are an interesting an interesting bunch. And a lot of these Americans I'm talking about are actually probably, you know, Russian American or Jewish Soviet American and so on. because um, as as Jill as Jill mentioned, you know, a lot of people that get into this field have have heritage that goes back to the to Russia or the Soviet Union or something like that. I don't I don't as far as I can t- as far as I know, my relatives are from somewhere in Europe, but I don't think they're distinctly from, from Russia. I, all I can tell you is that I'm white. <laughs> and, um, my last name has Germanic origins, but uh, I don't know beyond that. And so, yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I, in fact, the other thing that I'll admit is that to the degree that I kind of had any knowledge or awareness or interest in Russia as, a, as an adolescent, it was probably from the very same sort of popular American culture that we would now say is very pernicious to American understandings of Russia. So I'm talking about like Spies Like Us and, geez, I don't know. (laughs) So Spies Like Us really stands out, but but all all those Cold War, like, what's another one? Uh, The Experts, which is a John Travolta film, I don't know if you've seen that, where they're brought into a small Soviet town to train them in the hipster ways of the 1980s. And it's, it's, it's there's like an entire, it's a KGB run town. This is nonsense, obviously, but it's a KGB run town. That's, that's, that's completely fluent in English, but it turns out they've only gotten so far as the fifties in terms of slang and popular culture and and trends. And so they bring in some hip, some like cool guys from the eighties, who it's John Travolta and someone else, total nonsense movie, you know, very poorly informed about anything to do with, with Russia or the Soviet Union. But I watched these movies as a kid. And so when I got to college and had the opportunity for the first time to study Russian, I thought to myself, like, what is that all that? What is all that about? That's what a strange thing. Do I, I if I go to this class, am I going to have an even greater appreciation of of uh, John Travolta and and uh, Chevy Chase, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd? I mean, like, these are the things going through my head. So I, w- I won't pretend that that it was sophisticated uh, um, <laughs> motivations or anything. But that's
0: a great story. I mean, that's 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 actually a great story. I mean, that's very similar. I I might say sometimes people ask. Maxine, why have you started, why you took up journalism? I mean, you know, did you want to, you know, serve your country, you know, develop a public good or something, but that was because in the 90s I couldn't find a a decent job. I was supposed to be an architect and uh, it was really hard to be an architect at the time and being a originally a a translator actually, then journalist. It was kind of fun but, uh, and we started a, a new product, it was a new media so it was interesting but Rather than that, no. Uh, so I wasn't like dreaming of being a journalist. And um, yeah, but um, another question is this. Um, when I see uh, Russia, the way Russia sort of uh, functions in American media, but not just in American media, in some British media as well, I think, uh, especially if it's literature, sort of literary-centered uh, things like book reviews, Russian literature, Russian names, seem to be a symbol of something very sophisticated. This that's my impression. It's uh, you know, the poetry, the uh, the, the, no, the great novels of the nineteenth century uh, and 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 they sort of they they're kind of decoupled from the political, the Russia of politics, the Russia of uh, today's uh, current uh, news, etc. So is there is this impression right? Uh, because obviously, yes, I'm not in there. I'm on outside. I'm in Russia and in Europe. Is there a good Russia? That's the question.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important distinction to make too. Because when when you listen to American political rhetoric, it's almost entirely negative. And but they're they're not talking about Russian literature or Russian culture for that matter. They're talking about Kremlin policies. I mean, that's like the, When you hear that kind of rhetoric, it's really Americans identifying the entirety of Russia with either Putin or the Kremlin. And that's, that's implicit when we say the Russians, when we're talking about a political story. And I think that that can be misinterpreted when it's heard either abroad or by, by speakers who don't speak English as a, as a first language. I think that that can be lost in translation. And it can be misunderstood by Americans too, for that matter.
0: Jill, what do you think?
2: Is there a good Russia?
1: I hope so. Um... <laughs> You know, I think I wouldn't call it good or bad, Max. I think I would call it um, a fuller picture of what Russia is about. I mean, in my dream of vision of what kind of uh, stories or reporting we would have on Russia, it would be a fuller version of and vision of what Russians are doing right now. And I think especially young russians i mean i think russia is changing i don't know where exactly it's going but if you look at some of the statistics that are coming out of like the studies from the levada center maria Snyegavaya is doing work over at sepa there are a lot of um, people now who are looking at young people and i think they they're different you know they are much more open it's all really because of the internet essentially And they're much more open to the West. They speak other languages. They travel more. And I would like to see more reporting about that and probably less about the micro focus on Putin and every single thing connected with him. And one of the reasons I'd like that is that the news hole, as we call it in the trade, is very, very small right now. You know, if you have a story about Russia, it's probably the only story that you're going to get for a week. And it's go- if there's something happening like Navalny's poisoning or whatever, that's what's going to fill that hole. And so there is no space right now. There is so much news in general, and what's going to fill that space is just one story. You're not going to get a story about volunteers out in Siberia who are, you know, well, uh, let's say, working in the trenches and helping their communities, which is really where Russia is changing. But you're not going to get those stories. So I think that. If you say, is there a good Russia? I think there is a good Russia, except that we don't know about it, or at least most people don't know about it.
0: Something that I, I see from my point of view as alarming is this, that uh, whenever the Kremlin, uh, the Russia's politicians, talk about The grassroots movements and uh, all kinds of uh, NGOs that that they deem dangerous, they always imply that those are uh, foreign funded. Essentially what they do, they deny agency. They say that uh, nothing that has not been allowed is essentially uh, funded by someone else and is a tool, is a weapon by a, a hostile nation. And what I see recently, or have been seeing, maybe I'm mistaken, in the States, and whenever there are statements about those new movements, grassroots movements, including identity movements of various kinds, when I see people saying that uh, those are not real, those have been um, instigated by, including the Russians as well, I kind of see an echo of that, of uh, denying the agency, the real substance. Uh, so, like everything is—is is this? I mean, if you take this to the point of uh, of the absurd, the the Russian thinking, the kind of military thinking, is that everything is a weapon. So essentially, you know, NGO is a weapon, demonstration is a weapon. A song is a weapon. A YouTube channel is a, everything. So this kind of thinking—it's of course—it's not that bad in the in the states. But what do you think? To what extent it's um, real? This uh, uh, denying the agency to movement.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing, Maxime. Um, the way you're approaching that—you know—obviously, Russia thinks the United States and the West are fomenting color revolutions. And then you're right that maybe in the United States people of the more conservative bend think that identity politics is kind of fomented by the enemy or you know it's it's kind of an organized movement. I tend to believe that we're just in a very very important period of change in the United States that kind of can get messy, you know, when there is big societal change. The country is much more diverse We have many more people from mixed uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Just, we've never been as diverse. And so this could be just kind of that rocky period where you have to kind of come to the understanding that this is what we've got. We've got a very diverse society. It's no longer predominantly white. And a lot of the approaches that we used when it was, you know, Anglo-Saxon white um, approach just won't work anymore. But what's next is the question, you know, how do we bring everybody into this? How do we divvy up uh, power and influence. And the, so I, I tend to take a much longer view personally on this, that we're just kind of in the, the shoals of change. And it, I f- firmly believe it's going to get better because it is a fact. It's just simply a fact. We're going to have to deal with that diversity. And I think, you know, Russia too, I think what Kevin was talking about in terms of, you know, Soviet history is really, really true And I do think that there is something in Putin's Russia, which I'm going to call infantilization, you know, that they just, they, Sometimes the people in the Kremlin believe that Russians are like infants, that you can't really trust them. If they, if left to their own devices, they'll make terrible mistakes, or the country can be destabilized, and we have to, as a result, keep it very, very locked down and controlled because chaos is lurking outside the gates. And to me, this is a really it's an insult to the mentality of Russians, because Russians can build their own democracy and they can make mistakes and sometimes those mistakes can be very serious. But eventually that's how a democracy is built. You just have to make mistakes and you still try to build it. The Kremlin has said, I actually had this discussion a number of years ago, where I said to a person who was working for the Putin administration, do you actually believe in democracy? And this person said, well, of course I do. Of course we do, Jill. Yeah, no question. And so I said, well, then why not just let people kind of do what they want to do and vote for whomever they want to vote for? And he literally said, because we can't trust it, because they'll make a mistake, maybe they'll vote for the communists, maybe they'll vote for somebody else. We, we just can't trust it. Eventually we will, he said. <laughs> you know, but I mean, When? When? was my question, and it still is.
0: Yeah, maybe just for concluding a little round, uh, uh, what do you think is, um, there's this alarm, I've read many, many pieces in the American press, by uh, Russianists, by people who study Russia, who say that uh, tenured positions are getting uh, closed, that there's less and less. The Russian language is... Uh, uh, attracting less interest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what do you think? You know, just to come back to the beginning of our discussion, that what do you think could be done? Is there really something that could be done to return uh, this, you know, study of Russia as a uh, as a reputable uh, <laughs> as a reputable job uh, as a as a mission? So what could be done to make it interesting again?
2: As I said earlier, I do think that the, the scholarship on Russia right now is probably better than it's ever been simply because it's not hindered by by the kind of ideological confines of the Cold War. Obviously, in terms of funding, it's not as good as it's ever been. <laughs> um, and so more money would certainly help because it would just hire more staff and so on. I mean, I don't think, I think that's a pretty straightforward response, but it's also, I think, true. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like raising cultural interest... I mean, in, in, until Russia and the United States have more exchange, either in terms of people or goods or services or whatever, then I think we're kind of in the boat that we are. If I mean, a lot of, I think, at least in the United States, a lot of the expertise, the waves of expertise have kind of come in, in flux with the the waves of expats and so on. And so I don't know, maybe there'll be another mass exodus <laughs> of from Russia and we'll get a whole new flavor of, of a big influx of... of uh, the, new, the latest Russian intelligentsia, and that'll just get us going on a whole new thing. <laughs> a words of a real patriot, a real Amer- American patriot. Jill, what do you think?
1: I think there are two sides to it. If you look at the um, humanities studies and you know Russian language, Russian literature, et cetera, I think it's going to be very difficult because you're facing not only that part of it, but you're facing humanities studies versus STEM. And right now, STEM seems to be winning because people say, well, what am I going to do with a PhD in Nabokov, you know, because there just aren't the opportunities to study and do that type of work. So that legitimately is a problem. But I think if you look at the area studies, security studies, et cetera, which includes the language, there's no question, that I think it's more hopeful there. But I do believe that the U.S. government must put more money into the study of Russian. It is ridiculous that they, at this point, you know, have actually taken away some money. I think some is coming back. But the lack of seriousness about why we need people who understand Russia is crazy, and it's dangerous. So I believe there should be more federal funding. I got into Russian, even though you could put me in the kind of humanities side of it, I got into the study of Russian because my teacher, did ha- who was a native Russian in high school, native Russian speaker, he had money from the federal government, from a, a national defense foreign language fellowship, to teach Russian and to learn how to really teach correctly. And so that got me into the study. And then I turned out to love it and continue with it for the rest of my life. But I do think... More money from the federal government, and I agree with Kevin, more money for exchanges. Because I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union, and uh, I did it twice, and it literally changed my life. And a lot of people who went through those programs ended up in the State Department, became ambassadors, became experts in the Soviet Union, and then in Russia. It was the best money that was ever spent by the federal government.
0: Cool. Thank you. Um, on this hopeful note, thank you, Jill Dorothy. Uh, thank you, Kevin Rothrock, uh, for taking time and uh, joining um, the Cannon Institute uh, for this uh, discussion. I think it, it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much.
1: The Russia File podcast is a product of the Canon Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Canon Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Cannon Institute and Russia file is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Canon Institute, on Facebook at cannon.institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash cannon.